And then I had to make a decision, Erin. I had to sit down and think about, well, what, what do I really want? Do I want to try to juggle, you know, a design practice and an art practice? Or do I want to start weeding out the design and moving it into fun art? And that's what I decided to do. Welcome to the Flying Fruit Bowl, a platform dedicated to the discussion and exploration of art and the creative process. I'm the host and creator, Aaron S, and this week's episode is the first part of a two-part conversation with the amazing artist, Anna Carp. Anna is a fine artist based in Chattanooga, Tennessee, whose work looks at the erosion and degradation of the urban environment. I had a great time talking to Anna, and I really hope you enjoyed this conversation too. Okay, we'll just start where I start with everybody, which is just tell us a bit about yourself and how you became an artist. Oh, yeah. So um, as I think you know from your research on me, I started as a graphic designer and illustrator, which I'm very open about on my website. Um, It was kind of an interesting journey in that I didn't have a clue. I was a high school dropout. And, you know, this was in the 1970s when... There were still a lot of drugs around. Um, it was after the 60s, everyone was trying to kind of figure out how to how they survived the 60s and who did survive the 60s. So, um, you know, there was just a lot of turmoil in my teenage years. And so I end, ended up actually having to go back and get a GED. And then once I did that, my mother sat down with me and had a come to Jesus conversation. So what, what the heck are you going to do? Hmm. <laughs> You've got a GED, you're a high school dropout. <laughs> so um, she was actually teaching at a local community um, center. It was like what we call a trade school over here. And so she said, why don't you take their aptitude test to see if there's anything here that interests you? And when I did, what jumped out was commercial art. So I was like, okay, that's really weird because up until that point, I'd only done the obligatory art classes that you had in standard, you know, state run junior high, high school, all that kind of stuff, even back to elementary school, finger painting, all that kind of thing. And so I never really, I don't come from an art dynasty. Nobody in my family was an artist. It wow. was not part of my visual landscape growing up. It was very, very different. I grew up in a blue collar family, a big family. And, you know, too many kids, not enough money. So it was definitely a very um, kind of typical childhood for that time. So basically, I started out in the commercial art program and then did a year of that and went to work for the Venice Sun newspaper. This is South Florida, by the way, um, because I grew up in Sarasota. And so Venice was a town south of Sarasota and found out within six months it was a dead end job. Went back to my mother and said, this is not working. (laughs) What, you know, because I was still living with her at this time. And so she said, well, you need to go to college. And I'm like, well, how, how am I going to do that? Because we were not, you know, nobody saved for college education. It was not thought of in blue collar families that you were going to go to college. 
So then she did some research and she found out about the Pell Grant Program, which was, they're still around, but not to the extent they were when I was at that age. So uh, we filled out the application, sent it in a month later, got news back that we qualified. And then it was like, it was stunning. Kind of that, that was one of those milestone seminal moments that I was going to go to college. Here I was a high school dropout, you know, wound my way around to it. So I was actually like two years behind most of my contemporaries. Um, because, you know, I entered college at 20 instead of 18 because of the roundabout way that I went. So at any rate, off to college I went. And of course, I chose graphic design as my major because that's what I started with in trade school. And I knew that it needed to be something creative. I had that sense. And so that's what I did. And I graduated four years later. I moved to Atlanta, Georgia to speed this part up a little bit and started out working for other companies, but I found out real quickly that working for other people, I didn't care for it at all. (laughs) And I was like, something's got to change here. So after three years of working for three different companies in a highly stressful industry, I said, okay, I've got to go freelance. And so that's what I did. I went freelance and I've been self-employed ever since. So I'm, wow. I was used to that lifestyle. I was used to being on my own, having a home design studio, um, building a group of people around me early on. I had a photographer, a copywriter, and a production artist that worked with me on a regular basis. They were all freelance as well. I knew I didn't want to handle employment, payroll, and all that stuff. But what I did do is I had my vendors bill me for their services, and then I would include those bills in my bill to the client. So it was a roundabout way of handling it, but it was also one in which I was very transparent with my clients. I was very open to them with what these vendor costs were. I would even, you know, send them copies of invoices for those that wanted them. And, you know, I didn't mark up their services. I wasn't about that. What I wanted to be was honest, Hmm. transparent, and just do a good job and and focus on the design. Then the industry changed dramatically with desktop publishing, and that pretty much killed the design studio situation. Everybody's administrative assistant became a designer. So that's actually what propelled me into fine art was to seeing the death of one industry, everything going online. Um, So then I finally said, okay, you know, something's got to give. And part of it was burnout from the industry. And I started taking a Monday night painting class to, for stress relief, really. And what I found was I took to painting. I was like, what, what is this wet media? You know, what can I do with this? So it was kind of a natural thing to do. And so I had that going on the side. I was still doing illustration and design for a very select group of clients. This was um, Coca-Cola in Atlanta, the Schweppes uh, drink mixers people, um, a insurance company, I did work for their annuity department. So marketing, 
um, basically insurance annuities, which mirrored the stock market. Okay. And then, believe it or not, I had a whole host of law firms that I did work for. So lawyers loved my design style. It was weird. So I had these real disparate kind of groups of clients. And I gradually, as I painted more and more and more, I had friends that were saying, Anna, you really need to photograph this work and approach galleries because your work is really good. And I didn't think it was. I just thought it was, I was just letting off steam. I had this other career going on, right? So then I did what they suggested. And I found back then you took slides of your work. There were no smartphones. So I had, I found a photographer that did slides. He specialized in photographing artists' work. So he did it really well. That was key. And then I did a whole series of work. I did like 25 pieces. And this was the early work. This was the abstract figurative work that um, you've alluded to in some of the questions that I read in your interview notes. And so I just sent them out. You know, this was like cold calling. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I found galleries in Atlanta. I sent out, I think it was like something like 10 packages I sent out with slides. Three months later, hadn't heard a word from anybody. So I said, well, I guess that was a bust, right? So I just went back to graphic design illustration, but I got people off my back. I said, look, I gave it a shot. Nobody's interested. And just went on about my business. And then four months later, I got a notice from Bill Bender of Bender Fine Art in Atlanta. And he said, I love your work. So sorry for the late response. And apparently he, you know, back then, you know, they would have stacks of this stuff to go through artists trying to get their work out there in, into the market. And he said, I love your work. I want to arrange a studio visit. So I said, okay, great. So he came at that time. I had a studio outside of my home because I was focusing on design still as my main moneymaker. So that was in my home. I kept my painting separate from that. And so we met at my studio and he, he just, there was like silence for a half an hour while he walked around looking at my work and I was going, oh my God, (laughs) this isn't going well, you know, you know how insecure you are when you're first showing something for the first time to somebody who could make or break your life. You know, this was Mm. another milestone moment. So then he just turned to me and he said, Anna, I'm stunned. And I was like, really? And he said, not only do I love your work, I know I can sell it. And I was like, really? I was completely taken Uh aback. So he said, I want all of these pieces. And I was like, okay. That's incredible. That was incredible. I mean, so I said, okay. So I actually had to, um, at the time I was living with a, a longtime boyfriend and fortunately he had a van. So I was able, we were able to pack up all this work and get it over to the gallery. You didn't have to rent a van, got it over there. And then, you know, I filled out a contract with him. We went over kind of like the business end, what they expected. And back then, this was the mid 1990s and this was the heyday of the gallery circuit globally. It's when it was before the art fair stepped in 
and completely changed the landscape and the internet changed the landscape. So it was a very different time. And he just, he, he just, he went over everything. We talked about pricing because I didn't know how the heck to price the work. So I was like, Bill, you tell me what you think you can get for this work because I don't have a clue. And that's what most artists experience when they first try out, you know, how do you get your, how do you price your work? What do you do? So I actually relied on his input because he knew what he could sell the work for. He also said, we have to calculate what you need to get out of it because I'm taking 50%. Yeah. So that's the other consideration when you work with galleries. And I said, okay, um, well, what do you think you can sell it for? And then I had to decide, can I be happy with half of that? Yeah. Since I had this other income from my design studio, I was like, okay, that's fine. That works for me. And then I left and I went back to work and just forgot about it in a way. I mean, I was like, (laughs) I got so busy with the rest of my clients, you know? I mean, I had all this other stuff going on. And he called me three weeks later. And I said, oh, this can't be good. (laughs) And he said, Anna, I just sold the 25th piece. Wow. That's really good. Three weeks. He sold 25 pieces in three weeks. And again, I was stunned. I was absolutely stunned. I was, I mean, literally, I didn't know what to say. And he said, well, obviously, I'm going to need more work. And I'm in the middle of all these contracts with these clients, you know. And I said, Bill, I said, well, Bill, of course, we're going to talk about this because, you know, I've got this. He knew I had this whole other thing going on. And I said, obviously, I'm not going to be able to just drop everything and start hammering out a bunch of work for you. That's 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 not going to make me happy and it's not going to make you happy. And it's not going to, you know, ultimately what people will see in the work will not be the same. So then we sat down. So I said, okay, let's get together and talk about a business plan. So see, this was interesting because here I had a gallery person who was willing to nurture this relationship Mm. with me to sit down and make a business plan about how many pieces he could get on a regular basis, how he could work around my day job. Yeah. And what his expectations were and what my expectations were. So I had the benefit of falling into this relationship right off the bat, selling work right off the bat. This is not a normal story, mm-hmm. what people you know expect. And having someone who walked me through the process, it was such a fabulous experience. And I really, really was sorry when that gallery closed um, after 9-11. But at any rate, so we sat down, we did a business plan. Then, you know, I said, you know, give me six months. Let me work on another body of work in between everything else. That was what we agreed on. And then I had to make a decision, Aaron. I had to sit down and think about, well, what, what do I really want? Do I want to try to juggle, you know, a design practice and an art practice? Or do 
I want to start weeding out the design and moving into fine art. And that's what I decided to do. I decided to just say, okay, this is a seminal moment in my life. Something, something is telling me with the ease with which this is happening is a clear message. Yeah. You know, I need to make a change. So I wasn't, I was becoming more and more frustrated with graphic design, more and more frustrated by then the internet was in its infancy, but it was still there. Um, I started on Apple computers because I was in graphic design. So I've always been loyal to Apple. Their first browser was called Sherlock. You're probably too young to remember. Yeah. And it was terrible. <laughs> I mean, you just, you, you just, I mean, Safari isn't that great, actually. It's one thing. So one weakness with Apple is their browser's not that good. So I actually, I actually use Firefox mostly. Um, both for the speed and for it's it's more secure. Hmm. <laughs> so I'm I'm loyal to the computer, but I'm not loyal to the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so at any rate, um, that that was the moment that you know I really so by now you know we're talking 1997, and then I just said okay this this is my new business plan I'm weeding out and actually the last client. It took two years for me to divest myself. Oh, wow. It took that long for me to divest myself from these clients because A, I was under contract with a couple yeah. of them and I needed to honor those contracts and leave with integrity. And so, um, but other clients, once I fit, completed, you know, projects with them, I let them know, look, this is going to be the last project I'm going to be working on with you because I'm making big changes. So I had to sit down with all my major clients and tell them what was going on. And again, be transparent, um, you know, treat them with dignity, give them recommendations of other designers that I think could work for them well, so that I wasn't just leaving them in the lurch. Hmm. And leave you know don't burn your bridges that's always been one of my major philosophies in life is you burn your bridges and that's it you know it because everything in your past informs your present and your future and if you burn your bridges you're burning your future to the ground mm -hmm. so it's a very simple philosophy and i encourage everybody to to get on the boat with that program so um, at any rate, it by 1999, I was doing art full time. Wow. And so from 96, it took that full three years to really make the final switch. And it was it was terrifying, actually, in a lot of ways. Because I was leaving contractual work. Yes, yeah, so that's guaranteed. That was guaranteed. And basically building my life on spec. Hmm. So doing doing something that completely was, okay, I'm just going to build a body of work and hope like heck that they can sell it. And that's, <laughs> yeah. that's total speculation. That's like living your life by, by the stock market. You know, it's a similar philosophy in that. That is a key thing where if I were to tell young artists one thing, 
I would say you have to commit to the lifestyle because the lifestyle is one where you build your life on speculation. There's no, there is no market security in art. It doesn't exist. And you usually have about a 10 year run of being extremely popular. And then the collector base changes and you start what people are interested in your work. They start looking to new younger artists and the cycle begins again. So um, that's all of this, of course, comes from 30 years of being in, in the industry now. But, um, you know, it's it's it was just a. A very difficult choice to make. It was not one. And by this time I was on my own. I wasn't living with a partner. So it was one I didn't even have anybody that I could really talk to about it, you know, in depth. Mm. Except yeah. some of except some of my close friends, which which I did have one best friend who still is a best friend that I would always run things by him and I still do. Um, but it's it was it, it was it's something that I don't you don't take it lightly. You just can't. So at any rate, um that that was that's kind of in a roundabout way. That's what started this whole art thing and and so I guess I come to it from the commercial aspect rather than the academic aspect I find that extremely fascinating for so many different reasons I feel like it's interesting because you're already in a job that was secure like and you had that security and you know you didn't actually have to do anything with art whatsoever you could have just continued your day job create art on the side just to kind of relieve stress and just get it as that but the fact that like the, the interesting thing for me about your story is that like that wouldn't happen nowadays. And that's what I love about it. There's actually an artist I interviewed very recently called Patsy McCarthy, who had a similar situation where she was able to travel a lot when she was younger because of the way the world was and how different things were back then. Whereas in now you just can't do that because there's a lot of red tape and there's a lot of um, just obstacles and boundaries. And, you know, money is always in the forefront of everything now, unfortunately. But I love, I love, love, love the idea that here you are creating these images that are relieving yourself and just kind of, you know, giving yourself, you know, just uh, some space to create and think about yourself. And they're super sellable and people want them. And you have no idea because that gives me like a lot of hope and kind of just like, I guess, encouragement for artists to keep creating because you don't know if what you're making is going to be, you know, sellable. It's going to be what people want, but you don't know because it's not down to you to decide. It's down to the people to decide. But then I think one thing that I've got from this really cool introduction is that like it's always about knowing the right person or it's about having someone who champions your work who really supports it and can see the belief in you as an artist and as a person because had you not been the way you were and had you not been the person you are he wouldn't have sat down and spoke to you and sat you through a business plan he wouldn't have asked you what do you want out of this because you know contracts nowadays can be very one-sided so i think this is an incredible story and it's just a great way to come about being an artist very different from the academic trajectory. Yeah. So one thing you have to realize is that there are two very different worlds of art. Yeah. You have the academic MFA trajectory and you have the commercial trajectory. So they they sometimes meet in the middle, but they don't always. And that's that's what I find fascinating. And that's actually the, the divide didn't used to be that big 
when mm -hmm. I first started out. There used to be a lot more museums interested in unknown artists or self-taught artists. Um, not so much anymore. If you're not on an MFA track, um, if you're not invested in the big idea about your work, so because that's what MFAs are about, is, is developing the big idea behind your work, the thesis behind your work, not the process necessarily. If the process is part of your thesis, yes, there's some overlap there. But I know a lot of people who um, teach on the university level within MFA departments. We have long discussions about this, you know, and, and I actually recently participated in an art talk with a panel of other people, gallery, two gallery owners and two artists. And it was um, done by our local um, association for visual artists, which is called AVA for short here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Excellent organization. Um, and there was a lot of questions within the audience about, you know, seeing, because it was interesting, we had one, two, one gallery owner and one artist that had pursued the academic direction. Oh, that's cool. And we had one gallery owner who was more commercial and myself. And so it was really, and I don't think, Tim, the moderator, really set out to do that. And, I, and, and I'm maybe selling him short. Maybe he did. But I don't think, but that's how it ended up. And it ended up being this really interesting dynamic to see the, the responses to his questions from one side of the arena and the other. Hmm. And so this was, it was fascinating to me. Because um, in a lot of ways, you know, people ask me, art, young artists ask me all the time, well, do I want to go into debt and do the MFA track where I, you know, end up owing eighty or $100,000, you know, because Pell Grants are not that available anymore. Um, and scholarships in fine art don't really exist much. Yeah. Um, they're, they're pretty much non-existent. So so it's it's a difficult choice to make. Um, in a lot of ways, the, you know, I asked them the same question that Bill Bender did all those years ago. What what do you want out of this? What 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 is it that you want? <laughs> That's actually a great question to ask yourself, though, because I feel like it's so easy to get caught up in the idea of like, oh, I want to be an artist, but it's like, but what do you want from that? Because it's very easy to be like, oh, I want you know, let's say lots of money, or I want to create work. It's like, but you know. At the end of anything you do, no matter how vague it might seem, there's always some kind of purpose. There's always something that you're doing it for, whether it's for yourself or for other people. And so I think that's really actually a really good point. That's a very good point. Um, but what are your thoughts? I'm just curious, like, what are your thoughts on art education in terms of, like, obviously you're a self-taught artist. You've came from a background that isn't academic. But do you think that there are benefits to having an academic background? For me, it did um, in terms of at least getting a bachelor's degree because I was a high school dropout. So I had something to prove. Not only did I have something to prove to myself about that, but also because I spent junior high and high school pretty much in a fog of drugs. <laughs> so I don't remember much of it. And oh. <laughs> I, in, in a way, I had to completely re-educate myself. So yeah, I imagine, yeah, I imagine so. You know, it was like I really 
you know, and it, this was a time in the school system where they just kind of passed you along. Hmm. You know, if, if you managed to make a D, you know, <laughs> great, they would just pass you along okay. wow. because, and nobody really, there wasn't that kind of intense focus on making students succeed like there is today. Hmm. Um, it was very much a kind of live and let live structure. And I have to say, you know, because I went from parochial school, which was um, Catholic-based school the first five years, to public school, which was a huge, it, the, di the difference was incredible. I mean, I'll say one thing for Catholic school. I, I learned a heck of a lot more in the first five years hmm, of school than I did in, in public school. It was much, much more intense education than, than it was in the public arena. Um, but the public arena was more freewheeling. So you you had more, um, I don't know, more ability to be yourself than a, you know, um, religious-based curriculum. Yeah, so yeah they, they have an expectation of what you should be, whereas in public school wouldn't have that. It's like you They can do don't kind of have it. Exactly. So it was this kind of, in, the freedom... And I wonder if that played a part in me going in, into the drug realm. <laughs> of course. Because... Of, yeah, of course, I imagine it would do, because it's like in, say, a Catholic school, that wouldn't be as, well, for sure wouldn't be emphasized or like highlighted, but it'd also be um, dealt with in a very different way as well. This is also the thing. And also the interesting thing is, is that that probably also influenced your work later on as well, though. That's the interesting thing. Like not having that that kind of, even, almost even just like the memory of your high school years like that would probably in some way then push you to work harder when you know later on in life when you work creating more work because it's just like well actually now i've got to make up for that time i've lost so it's as you said yourself like the past informs your future like that's very interesting how the things you do do in the past actually really do inform what you end up doing in the future oh absolutely and i will say that the early work that i was doing with um the figurative abstract was based on you know the perception and the fascination with stained glass windows mm. so oh, you know, nice. in fact yeah so in fact when, yeah. when we were in church my mother was always elbowing me to pay attention to the mass because i'm i'm looking at the stained glass windows i'm not paying attention uh, you know see, i was fascinated by that see, that's interesting because it's just like you know maybe i time in your life which you know you didn't necessarily enjoy back then it's like it informs you like that's so cool that's so interesting. And it makes so much sense now thinking about those images. It makes so much sense. That's fascinating. Yeah, because um, if, if you think about stained glass art, you have to create something using pieces of shapes. So the fact that I was drawn into a more abstracted form right from the get-go is, is a direct result of that history, hmm. of, of being part of that. So... Um, I mean, I left the church as soon as I was confirmed. So, so that was, <laughs> it was like just not the trajectory I wanted to yeah, take. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But it, it it was interesting. It was an interesting beginning. And it definitely formed most of my political beliefs later on in life. So that's that was something that I can directly relate to that for sure. So what is the biggest challenge of being an artist? Focus. Um, 
we now live in an age where uh, accessibility is unbelievable. Um, emails, internet, social media, you know, we're being barraged by information. We're being barraged. Everybody's selling our private information. Nobody has any privacy anymore. Yeah, that's true. Um, so I would say one of the most difficult things for artists is to stay focused and showing up in the studio, staying, you know, carving out the time that you need to actually physically produce something um, because it's not going to paint itself. It's not going to make itself. True. You know, you have to carve out the time in our busy lives to to do it. So in a way, even though I no longer consider myself spiritual or religious, I do look at the studio as a form of sacredness. Hmm. And I, I place it in high esteem because that is what drives me. It's what illuminates me. It's what interests me. It's what fascinates me. It's what, you know, it's a compulsion and an obsession. And you know, basically it's determined how I live my life because I don't have time for intimate relationships. I live alone. I have a cat. Okay. Um, I chose not to have children because I'm too dedicated to what I do. And I knew I wouldn't do them justice. And I, and I knew that we were overpopulated. I came from a huge family. My siblings all reproduced. I was like, I didn't need to participate in that. <laughs> My 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 ancestors and my um, family are legion. So you know, because Catholics, uh, well, certainly up into my generation, didn't believe in birth control. Hmm. So you know that that is something that I didn't have to elect, carve out the time to because children are very time consuming. Oh, and absolutely. I knew, I knew I was like there. I just I'm not going to be. I'm too selfish. I'm not going to be with my time. I'm not going to be a good parent. And if I try to be a parent and be an artist, I'm not going to be happy. Hmm. And I knew that. I knew that right off the bat because maybe because I grew up in a big family. Yeah, I imagine so. And I saw the stress it put on my parents and I okay. saw the, 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 the stress of not having enough hmm. and not having enough time. And the fact that both of them had to work you know, we were latchkey kids. This was mm -hmm. this was during a time where your older siblings were your parents. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's kind of funny because a lot of people ask me, like, they're like, oh, you know, why don't you have kids? Because I'm 30. I just turned 30 earlier this year. Um, and a lot of people are like, oh, why don't you have kids? And I'm always like, I'm too selfish. There's plenty of things I want to do with my life right now that don't involve having to have kids or having mm -hmm. that commitment of something other than myself. Because, like, you know, I want to go and travel. I want to go and create art. I've got the podcast I'm doing. What I do takes a lot of time. And it's like, to hear you say that gives me a lot of kind of just like reassurance. Actually, you don't have to buy into what everybody else wants you to do. You can also just do what you want to do. And there's nothing wrong with that. Because a lot of people are always a bit like, oh, well, that's a bit, you know, they'll be like, oh, that's a bit sad. Or they'll be a bit like, you know, oh, but aren't you lonely? Or they'll be like, you know, oh, but that's a bit boring. And it's like, well, actually, no, I enjoy it. It's my life. You know, you know, it's a bad that I don't need to have. I don't know. But hearing you say that makes me feel like, oh, actually, you know what? This is cool. I can do that. That's no problem. There's a small army of us that believe this way. Yeah. And I have a, a pretty large circle of friends where we're all childless. Hmm. Um, and it's, you know, we gravitate towards each other because 
society has these constraints where they want you to couple off, they want you to pr produce children, they, you know, there's all the thing about marriage, you know, building community. And you know what? It's possible to build community without all of yeah. those, without yeah. the state telling you what to do. Yeah. You no, know, because I've been rebellious right right from the get-go. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I grew up in a time where sexual harassment was rampant. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the bra burners were just getting started in my teenage years. Um, it was it was a time of great upheaval. The Vietnam War had happened, which was kind of the war that changed all things for for Americans in, in particular. Um, and it really brought a lot of, pol you know, the politics exploded in this country during the Vietnam War. It was a very different experience for us. Politics were just sort of there hmm. prior to the Vietnam War. But for some reason, that time and the counterculture and everything that happened, it set us on a new path as a country. And, you know, we're still kind of reeling from it to be honest i mean it's it's we haven't had a major world war now in a while um so we have all these generations of kids who don't because i grew up with depression era parents and we knew what it was like to be without hmm. and oh. now we've had all these generations where they don't know what it's like to be without yeah it's it's um it's an age of, well, I don't know, the me, me, me thing, I guess, is is part of what I have problems with today. Um, it's one of, you know, the selfie revolution I found to be kind of ridiculous in a way. And I guess, I guess there were vestiges of it. I mean, going back to cave art, you know, because that's what the cave artists did. Hmm. They were recording their daily life and then they would imprint their hand on the cave wall i was here so it was a form of selfie you know if you want to if you look at it that way so i guess we, we've always been wanting to prove that we were here in a way and i think that's what drives a lot of artists that that yeah. concept of i'm here i create this is what i do you know this is a legacy i want to leave you know and since i don't have children as we were talking about earlier, you know, every piece I do is a child. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it is like giving birth to it. You know, it's, it's a very, you know, it comes out of you. It's, it's a culmination of where you're at in your life at any given time. Every, and that's why your work changes over, over the years. Um, You know, you can't keep hammering out the exact same thing over and over again. We're not machines. We're just not. And, you know, artists, you need to go with the flow. You need to, you know, if, if you're bored with what you're doing, change it. Yeah. yeah. It, it's really that simple. I think it's just because a lot of artists worry about their audience. They worry about their audience changing or like people may not like what they're doing or they may not be like sure of what they're doing. Like if they change, like let's just say somebody's creating, I mean, you're the perfect example that you're creating abstract, abstract figures and then you change to more just like abstract, almost like landscapes, but not landscapes. Um, but like some people might be like, this is too much for a different change. People might not like it. I think a lot of people are very worried about what other people think, especially when it comes to making money off your art as well. Because, you know, somewhere along the line, you have to have something that's going to be commercial because people, you want people to buy it. It's, it's a good 
consideration. It is definitely something to think about. The reason I switched, I made the switch was, and, and one of the things I think that artists are not told, both in academia and just in general discussion, is that there is a finite period of time where your work, whatever you're doing at any given time, is going to be collected. Everybody who wants to collect that work is going to collect it. Yeah. And they're not. Okay. So there are ebbs and flows to the artistic life. You you get in favor, your work is hot for a while, and then it's not. And then it's like, and, and no matter what we do, we take it personally because it's like, gosh, you know, this is what I'm doing, right? This is yeah. me. You know, why don't people want me anymore? You know, it's it's yeah. it there, it's an emotional roller coaster. It really is. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I say you have to be committed to the lifestyle because this is part of the lifestyle. You're going to have periods where your 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 work is highly collected, and you're going to have quiet periods. And are you prepared for that? And if you're not, why don't you start changing? And so that's what happened to me. Everybody who wanted the work that I was doing early on collected it, and those uh-huh. sales started dropping off. And I'm going. Okay, so time to reinvent myself again, which is what artists do. We're constantly reinventing ourselves. And this isn't working anymore. Fine, what what is? So it was actually the market changing is what propelled me into a more, a less figurative approach. Figurative art was going out. Abstraction was coming in. Um, pay attention to what collectors want because that's something that a lot of artists don't do is you know develop develop the instincts to follow where collectors want to go and in a way that sounds like well but then I'm not being true to what I do but there's always a way that you can still be true to what you do and evolve into something that is more currently collectible. I believe in that. And maybe because I come from a marketing background, that's why I believe in it. But I think it's actually kind of hard for artists now to to figure out what the collectors are. I think that's the hardest part because like everyone's like, oh, post Instagram, but like collectors aren't most likely not even gonna be on Instagram. You know, Instagram is public. Instagram is for everybody. It's not for collectors. You know, and for me, I think it's very, very interesting because I think that's the one biggest kind of, well, not one biggest challenge, a lot of, one of the many challenges that I, when I talk to artists, they say about, you know, they want to know, you know, they want to find collectors of their work and like their work is great, but it's just finding the right person who is going to understand that work is really the hardest part. Like the creation of the work isn't that hard because you will do that naturally. It's finding the people who are going to then want that work. That's the hardest part. And I think definitely nowadays with the arts industry the way the arts industry is and especially with the prevalence of the internet i think it's extremely hard to know the quality of the person looking at your work and if that person is somebody who is looking at your work as an investment as and you know as something that could help you or something that's just like looking at it passively i think that's a problem well one of the ways you can kind of monitor what people are buying is to look at auction art auctions so, you know, if, if you're an artist, you might want to subscribe to some of the platforms that handle auctions. Um, one of the ways, like there's um, Artnet News is one of the ones, if you, I'm sure you're probably aware of them. Mm-hmm. 
they have a whole, um, if, if you subscribe to them, they have a whole section dedicated just to art auctions. And you can see what, what is of interest. Now, those are top end collectors. Those are typically people, but it shows you the trends. You can intuit from it yeah. where the trends in art are going. Um, currently, everything that people of color are doing is collectible. And rightfully so, because it's been a totally under, under collected market. It's something that, you know, I have a lot of black friends who are artists, both male and female, and they have had a really hard time, hmm. you know, getting their work out there to the collectors that want it. And so it's, it's about time is what I say, you know, it's about time that women are, are gaining ground in the higher end collection. Um, but you can intuit from it where the market's going. The other thing you can do also is pay attention to what's selling at art fairs hmm. because that's that's a key indicator of what the, um, the, the real client base that's collecting mostly now is what we call the working rich. And why galleries the gallery circuit sort of the art fair circuit came in is we had a changeover from the main collector from the baby boom generation, which was trust fund babies who were jet setters. They traveled around the world. They had all this free time. They had places, resort towns that they would go to. That's, that's all the galleries I was in were in resort towns and that's where the money was. That's where you went. Well, the baby boom generation is getting older now. They're downsizing. They're, they don't have these big palatial homes anymore. Um, so they're waning as a collector base. And what's emerged is the working rich. The way the working rich operate is they want to go, they want to go to an art mall. And that's what an art, that's what art fairs are. They're an art mall. You go to the art mall, you go around to the various booths, you make your you spend a weekend or a week going to the major art fairs, you make all your purchases, you leave, you go home, you go back to work. That's where the collector base is now. Now the upcoming collector base, which is starting to dip their toes in, is the millennial generation. And, you know, the millennial generation has been very transient in their early careers. They only stay in jobs for about a year and then they move on and they move all over the country or all over the world for that matter. You know, they go where the opportunities have been. Um, so it's a very different generation and they've been into minimalism. You know, because they're so transitory, they can't keep hauling a big house full of artwork around with them. You just can't do it. Probably one of the reasons why NFTs have become so popular, you know, because you're buying a non-fungible token. You're buying something that's in the digital realm that, you know, you own and there you go. You, you can look at it anytime you want, right? So it's it's kind of an interesting tip of where the future is going in terms of where art art will be in a hundred years from now if if we're still here <laughs> period but um basically I would say for artists today looking for their market is 
try everything. Um, don't put your eggs in one basket because you can't. And so the way I look at, you know, I know a lot of artists who are, who, their sales are exclusively over Instagram. And I warned them, I said, look, once Facebook bought the platform, I knew it was going to go down in the toilet because basically it, they're going to do the same. They did the same thing to in, Instagram that they did to Facebook. They made it impossible for you to navigate the algorithm. It's just not doable anymore. Hmm. Um, you cannot grow organically on social media anymore. You just can't. It's become a business model. And so it's, you have to just get with the program and say, okay, but you know what? I know artists that jumped on the reels on Instagram right off the get-go and they catapulted in growth. And now even they are like screaming that nobody's seeing their videos anymore. You know, it's like, and because it's become a business model, um, what I'm reading, in fact, I read an article just this morning before this interview in Buzzkill about how influencers are starting to leave Instagram completely. And they're going back to how they originally started, which was blogging. That's interesting. So, so I was like, hmm, you know, because people have been talking about the death of Instagram for quite a while now. And it's like, yeah, well, it's going to happen. <laughs> you know, I mean, or it's going to be, it's going to rebirth into something that's not going to really work the way you originally thought it would, it would. So I can, here's how I approach social yeah. media. Okay. I see it as a tool, like an exacto knife. Okay. I post to Instagram simply to show the process of what I'm working on in my studio for the people who collect me and the galleries that represent me. And I tag them in the post so that they know they get the tag. They know they don't have to go into the feed to find the work. Um, I've gained enough followers to where I can have my favorites panel, which let's see, I don't even go in the feed anymore. I go to the favorites panel. I check on my 50 people that are in my favorites panel. Once you gain 10,000 followers, you can get the favorites panel. Okay. And so, so if you, if you reach that landmark with Instagram, that's, that's something that you can do. And there's no ads, there's no nothing on oh. the favorites panel. It's it's just straight posts of the favorites that you do that are on your list. And so it's it's wonderful. The other thing I do is because there are a lot of people, you know, once you run out of, you know, because there's more than 50 people I want to keep track of yeah. on Instagram. So I keep a running list and I just go to the search function. I type in. Their, their pages, I go directly to their page. I see what they're doing. That's how I use social media now. Hmm. Because of all the ads and all the recommendations and all the crap that is just flooded in the feed. And occasionally I boost a post if I'm doing a show, but I've noticed I still don't get the kind of engagement even on a boosted post yeah. that there used to be on it. So it's become something that you're just not going to see the kinds of numbers that you saw early on in Instagram. It's just not going to happen. 
That's true. But I always wonder, like, with people with large followings, like, how much of that does that, how much of that, especially on Instagram, actually converts into money for you? Because I feel like, you know, a lot of the time we look at uh, pages that have got, you know, they say 100,000 followers, and like, that's really great because that's a cool, quote unquote, cool number to have. But like, how much, like, how does that actually translate in real life into your bank account? Because I always say to everybody, I'm like, unless your followers match your bank account, does it really matter that much? Like, it's not that big of a deal. It's more people who are looking at work. That's great. But what, I don't know. I think the older I get, the more that I see Instagram, especially as a distraction, I think it's very distracting. I think your time could be better spent elsewhere. Post Instagram by all means, but don't spend hours and hours and hours and hours on it because that is not helpful just to you as your life in general, but just especially just in terms of like, what I've very much learned very, very recently is you can't get back to everybody all the time. You have to give yourself time. And if you're an artist and you want to create something, you have to spend the, as you said earlier, spend the time creating that thing. Because if you don't, why are you on Instagram? Like, why are you online? Because you've got nothing to share. You exactly. Know? I don't exactly. know. It's a, it's a very fine line. And it's something that I'm very much learning, particularly when it comes to responding to people. In fact, there's something I posted yesterday saying, like, people are going to have to wait for me to respond to them because I'm busy. I've got things to do. Um, and I don't want to be on Instagram all the time because I'm just busy. I've got things to do. I just want to, you know, you might come back. I might come back home from work and just be like, I just want to go to sleep, to be honest, you know? I don't want to have to be online messaging everybody and catching up with emails and catching up with features and catching up with other things. It's just like, it's too much. You need it time is- to take a break. You need time to take a break. And, you know, I also do photography. So I'm also out taking images. I'm also editing. I'm also got, you know, I make music as well. So I also do that. Like I do a lot of different things. I think it's, it's as you said earlier, it's hard to balance everything. And it's like trying to find the value in what you do for yourself, not because other people are going to see it as well. I think the most important thing to do is create work for yourself. And actually, do you create work? What would you say you create work for yourself first or do you create it for others first? I create work for myself first, first and always. Yeah. Um, because if I don't like what I'm doing, um, it's it's not worth it. I, I might as well just go get a job, you know? Because, you know what I'm saying? Because it's yeah. like, what's the point of creating something that doesn't make you happy anymore? It's It's not... To me, and again, that's why I keep saying you have to commit to the lifestyle. You have to commit not only to the lifestyle, but the commitment to the work itself. And so I am fortunate that I come from a generation of people and a family lineage. I come from peasant German farmers is my ancestry. And so I'm probably mostly, probably 95% German some French and some Scottish in there. Wow. Um, so so I'm belligerent and systematic <laughs> yeah. based, based on the ancestry of Western Europeans that I'm from. So, um, you know, and I think one of my nieces found there was a, a Swiss, there's some Swiss in there somewhere too, a little teeny, teeny bit. So, but definitely Western Europeans. So, so it's really... Um, pragmatism and a work ethic. And I think that that's, you know, you, you know, that just from the fact of what you've just said, you you do all these different things and the way for you to make a living is to do a bunch of different things that bring, you know, diversified revenue stream. Who know that artists were going to have to think about diversified revenue stream. That's true. But, But today you have to think about it. 
because you can't sit in a bubble anymore and create art, have one powerhouse gallery that represents you and you earn, you know, 100,000, 200,000 a year, whatever it is. You know, that type of relationship only happens at the very top end of the art world. And most of us aren't going to get there. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the top 1%. And to be fair, I think it's it's a dream of a lot of artists to be like that. But I feel like when you're at a point where you don't even create the art yourself and it's based off your name, I think that kind of is a, a sad, it's quite sad because it's not about the art anymore. It's about the brand. And I think the separation of the two is is kind of a bit of a debate in the art, art realm anyway. But I just feel like it's, it's always a bit sad when I hear about people like Damien Hirst, for instance, who, you know, is always spoken about here in England or at least in the UK. And it's like, his work is cool, but like, it's just because his name is attached to the work, not because his work is necessarily important. There are 50,000 other artists that are so unknown and anonymous that you could have chosen for a spotlight, but instead you chose somebody who's already famous and rich enough that he doesn't need to care about making any more art for the rest of his life. You know, I think that's, I think the inequality of, you know, who do we place the spotlight on is also a bit of a problem, I think. You know, you've hit on something that is definitely, you know, where, where, what I see and why this happened. It's when um, consortiums began to infiltrate the art world. And so this mm. started happening, I would say, really in the early 2000s um, is when the the really the stock market and the financial people got involved in the art world. They started buying art as investment. Yeah. And, and that's why we had this con that's and that's when the concentration of high-end art went to the very top. They did the same thing to the art industry that they've done to every other industry out there. They've they've concentrated all the wealth at the top. And it's because they started buying up, and that's how Damien and Mark Bradford and, you know, everybody who's who's now at the very top end. Um, who's that guy that rubs stuff all over fabric and drips wax on everything? Sterling Ruby. Um, yeah. So he's he's another one. And these are people that because they've gotten into the top end, they, their work started being bought by these consortiums that. It what Jeff Koons is another one to think about. Yeah, of course, Jeff Koons. You know, of course. You know, that's that's another big one. Um, he's he's like the Bill Gates of the art world, you know. Um mm. it's it's they protect their investment by keeping the prices elevated. Yeah. And that's and that's what you're exactly what you're hitting on. It all becomes about the name and the brand. And quite frankly, I don't want to be that type of artist. Yeah no matter how much money you're making. And that's a choice I had to, and again, that's why I say the commitment to the lifestyle. You know, I've decided that the art is what's important. Being happy about what I produce is what's important. And am I willing to just live on the edge of the abyss financially all the time? And I said, yes, I am. I'm used to it now. I've been doing it for three years. It doesn't scare me anymore. Because quite quite frankly, tomorrow, you know, Bill Gates could lose everything. That's true. That's true. And also, the more you have, the more you have to lose at the exactly. end of the day. You know, exactly. I think 
there's something really, really nice about the idea of like, you know, that you have nothing left to lose. I think it's as much as it might be quite a depressing notion, I also do feel like there is something to it in terms of like, you don't have to have a lot to be fulfilled. You know, society will tell you that you do. Society will tell you you need everything, but you don't. You need what's going to make you happy to make you happy. And if, if honestly making art and, you know, getting by and making art and, you know, being able to obviously have a house, be able to feed yourself, you know, look after yourself. But if that's on a low income, but you get to create art and you have fulfilled by that, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I think we should really, especially as like a whole society, be more kinder to artists in general in terms of like, not everybody's going to be Damon Hurst. Not everyone's mm-hmm. going to be Jeff Koons. Not everyone is going to make millions of pounds of that art. And that's absolutely fine, you know? And again, you have to ask yourself the question, what is it that you want? Yeah. You know, and that that's the big thing for me. It's like when I finally decided, look, the, the one thing I would recommend to anybody is to get out of debt. Figure out a way. Don't go into debt in the first place and figure yeah. out a way to get out of it. So I was actually fortunate in that I, I had, you know, that 10, 15 year period where I did make a lot of money at art. And I invested in homes that I knew could easily resell and I could make yeah. money on. And so when I moved to Chattanooga, I was actually able to pay cash for my house. So I have no mortgage. And that's why I keep my studio in my house, because I keep my overhead low. That has always been, if I'm going to survive as an artist, and if I'm going to live on the edge of the abyss, I'm going to get as out of debt. It's why I drive a 24-year-old van. Yeah. To me, that sounds perfect. Like, like of course and I, this idea of thinking about your finances and investing your money in ways that are clever for the future is a great 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 idea and a great uh kind of piece of encouragement for other people or a piece of advice because it's like that's something that no one's ever said to me and now you've mentioned it i'm like that's such a clever idea because people assume let's just say you made twenty thousand on a painting tomorrow People assume, cool, that's £20,000 in the bank. And yeah, it is. But then it's also like, how are you going to use that money? Because, you know, just because you get paid, you know, like it's very easy to, it, it's harder to get paid for something, but it's very easy to spend money. So like you have to yeah. then think about your finances and be like, okay, how are you going to invest this? Not just for the future of your art career, but also for your future yourself, because you're an artist. Particularly if you're a full-time artist, like you're, you're kind of paying yourself a wage here. So it's like, I like this idea that you've obviously clearly thought about like, oh, let's invest this money into homes. Let's invest this money into something else that I can actually have that's going to help me in the future. That's such a good idea. And no one's ever mentioned that. And I said that, I'm like, that's such a good idea. Such a good idea. It really is. And and again, I think it comes from the advantage of growing up with depression era parents. Mm. Because, you know, that was the thing is, you know, if if you went into debt in the depression, you were, you became homeless. Yeah. That's, that, that was it. You know, that's that's actually interesting because as you said earlier about, you know, like kids nowadays never being without. And that's actually a really interesting point because now you've just said that, it just made me think about like when you're in a position where you don't have a lot, you realize you don't actually need a lot. And I think that because when you have a lot and you've always had a lot and you have less, you kind of feel like wronged almost. Whereas mm-hmm. in like, I grew up in a family that wasn't very, we weren't rich at all, we were not great off, not, not all well off, but because of that, it's really set me up for like the way I think about money and the way I invest my time in things and what I choose is valuable and is not. Like designer cars, 
and designer clothes does not do not interest me. Investing into artists and looking at art and kind of looking at bigger conversations of life, that interests me. I don't know, it's kind of interesting, like when you don't have a lot, you actually realize how much opportunity there is for you to do things. Even the small things count. And I think a lot of artists are in a similar boat in terms of like when they start out because they don't make a lot of money, they use what they have and they kind of just, you know, they just kind of make it without kind of any particular knowing of what they're doing. And I think that's, there's a beauty in that, I think. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to romanticize struggling because that's always not fun, but there's a beauty in kind of just being able to use your instincts and kind of guide yourself through your own life. I don't know. It, it, I think it's very important to develop the the thing that, you know, never going without leads to is not only the deprivation you feel when you mm. don't get something all of a sudden, but it also unfortunately leads you to develop an entitlement attitude. Oh, well, yeah. You're actually entitled to this. And quite frankly, none of us are entitled to anything in this life. We really aren't. You know, we're here today, gone tomorrow. I mean, it's pretty finite what we're here for. And, you know, you, you can look at it spiritually. You can look at it pragmatically. You can look at it any way you want to look at it. The point is that we have a finite amount of time. We're here to make an impression. And so far what I'm seeing the impression of modern society to me isn't a, isn't a very good one. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's like I ask people, you know, when you look at the news and you look at social media and when you look out at the world, is it any wonder why I isolate myself in my studio and don't <laughs> want to go out there and be a part of this mess we've created. Right. Mm, you know, yeah. You know, and that gets to another point um, about artists. And again, part of what I say is, what is it that you want? Do you want to produce artwork that brings beauty into the world? Or do you want to produce artwork that's political, that wants to regurgitate and highlight what's going on? Um, do you want to do art that's part, that's that's the big idea, like Damien Hirst? Hmm. You know, Ai Weiwei, who I actually admire Ai Weiwei, um, you know, in, in his... Of course, he comes out of a culture that's so repressive. Yeah. And anytime he tries to go home to China, you know, there's the threat of being thrown into jail, you know. I yeah. mean, he literally lives on the edge. Um, so he comes out of, of a situation where he needs to and feels compelled to highlight what's going on in his country. Yeah. And of course, it makes him an enemy of the state, right? So, yeah. so. You know, it's all part of the, the choice you make as an artist. What is the path you want to take? Do you want to become subversive? Do you want to be political? Do you want to draw attention to stuff? Do you want to live that kind of lifestyle? Or do you want to create, bring beauty into the world? My choice was to bring beauty into the world. So no matter what I do, it's about bringing beauty. Because I think we have enough negativity in the world. Yeah, I don't absolutely. need I don't need to add to it. I really don't. But what I do is I'm sneaky about it. So within my work are hidden clues and messages that are subliminal. For instance, when I create the urban botanicals, um, the urban grids, they are comprised of imagery that I build in Photoshop. 
because I come from that design background. Oh, that's cool. I, I create most of my collage material in Photoshop using photographs of utility wires, telephone lines, dilapidated buildings, the, the textures of erosion, um, you know, things about our infrastructure. And I take them into Photoshop and I layer them with grunge textures and so forth, which grunge shows the erosion cycle. And what it does is through this layering process in Photoshop, it erodes those images even further. And then, which I, I love this new printer, I've got a Epson Echo Tank printer, which has these giant ink tanks that, you know, you can just keep printing and printing and printing and you don't run out of ink, which is wonderful. And you get the ink in these big ink bottles. Um, so it's a lot cheaper. The printers are more expensive, but the replacement ink is not. So I decided to make that investment because I use it. And then what I do is I buy acid-free paper and I print out all this material and I can make it any color I want in Photoshop, depending on the palette I've chosen for a particular piece. So I spend, I'll spend whole days just doing work in Photoshop and printing it out and building this collage material and then take it into the studio and all of it's like cut up and fragmented. And this is all a message about erosion and society, about what our modern life is doing to the planet. And it's embedded in the imagery in such a way that it's beautiful. Hmm. So not only using that sort of much overused concept of wabi-sabi, where you embrace the life cycle, and you admire erosion for what it is. Um, the Japanese belief of, of understanding that our elders have a lot to contribute to society, that we don't toss them aside like we do in the West. Yeah. And we focus on youth and beauty. Um, it's it's all of a piece, you know. So I've, well, you know, but actually the erosion it was originally called the erosion series and I changed it to the urban series because the erosion series became kind of a hot button topic for a lot of collectors. Oh. And so that was one place where I did decide to kowtow to my collectors a little bit, yeah. you know, because the verbiage didn't matter to me that much. Yeah. The images are what matter. So I changed it to the urban series and what do you know, they started selling better. So that, that was a good thing because titles can mean a lot of things, yeah. a lot. They're very important with, with work. So um, the reason I do urban botanical number, blah, 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 is because I don't have to think about the titles anymore. Yeah. They're just numbered within a series, but I do give them visual clues within the name of the series. So it does give collectors something to latch on to. And then I find by embedding my political beliefs and my concerns for the environment into the imagery itself in such a way that it's palatable for collectors and it brings beauty into the world, but the message is still there. So I would say to young artists trying to develop their thesis into the work they want to create. Again, 
figure out what you want. Do you want to be political? Do you want to bring beauty into the world? Which, which trajectory do you want to take? Is it an academic one? Do you want to go ahead and get an MFA and then pursue some sort of tenure track professorship within a fine art college somewhere and teach and then do your work and then build financial security through a tenure position so that you can retire from that at some point and have money coming in and then really focus on your art? Or do you want to focus on a more commercial aspect? Utilize Instagram or social media in the way that I described earlier in this interview, where you see it as a tool. Don't, like you said, I don't spend time on social media anymore. I have a schedule where I post. I do my posts. I write. I have a series of notes in my notes app on my devices. So all the hashtags are in there. (laughs) And all I have to do is change the first paragraph. I just go in and type in the new paragraph, copy and paste into all the platforms. And I'm done. I can post stuff in a couple of minutes. Yeah, that's exactly what I do, actually. Uh, Or during my lunch break at work, which is funny. Yeah, that's what I do. Exactly. exactly Or or my tea break. Yeah, my tea break. That's exactly what I do. Because it's just, it's, it not only does it keep everything consistent, but it just means you're on that for the last time. Exactly. Because the whole point of social media, especially, is like, is to take up your time, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, just jump on their post, get off it. If you've got messages to answer, set us some time aside for it later on the day or some other time to answer them. Exactly. Here's ways to do it that I found. So I definitely want to get into your work a bit more. So your work is abstract, but it's also collage, but it's also abstract. And I'm kind of curious, like, how do you define yourself as an artist? without trying to like put yourself into a box because your work kind of hits on a lot of different kind of genres and different places. Um, you know, that's, that's interesting. Where, where do I fit into the artistic description? You know, a question for the ages. Um, I would say honestly that I'm what you would call traditional abstract. Um, and that being that even though I have developed a unique style, I guess is, for lack of a better word, um, because it's based on this history that I have in my life and how I came to art. Um, It is approached in a traditional manner. And the reason for that is because that, well, it's, it's untraditional and it is traditional. So I do utilize Photoshop a lot in that I I use it to, I take bits and pieces of previous work and I put them together in new compositions in Photoshop and I print them out as a working sketch. So I have a preliminary sketch I'm working from and I do a traditional grid system, you know, so I'm taking an eight and a half by 11 size sketch. I grid it off. I take my canvas, I do a grid and I blow it up. So it's a very time-honored tradition of how to take something small and make it larger. I don't do projection on the wall. I'm not interested in that. One of the things I will say, and this is something I've recently learned in the last couple of years, what I didn't know was that I have dyslexia. And so it's a mild form, which is good and that what I part of the reason why I never did good in school 
was because I was undiagnosed with dyslexia. Um, and what that means, well, what it means for me and how, who actually discovered it was my eye doctor, which I was very surprised. It's vision related. It's an, obviously it's a, it's a motor dysfunction that's vision related. So I am left eye dominant and right-handed. So what happens is there's cross motor dysfunction in the brain from one side to the other. And something happens in the synapses where you end up flip-flopping letters and numbers. So, so this is why it's so difficult for people who have severe dyslexia are illiterate. They can't read. They literally can't read for that very reason. Um, so what I didn't know was that a byproduct of dyslexia is proportional acuity. So the only math that I ever did good at in school was geometry because it's based on proportion. And so I am able to work from preliminary sketches very easily in a grid system to blow them up because of this dysfunction I have that brought out another functionality in my brain that enables me to do it very easily. So, I mean, I can look at an object and I can look at a doorway and I can tell you that will not fit through that doorway instantaneously because I have this proportional acuity. Probably also what made me a very good graphic designer was the ability of distinguishing proportion because it's all about balance and harmony. It's about having a focal point. It's about incorporating disparate elements. And so the education that I had at the University of Florida the graphic design program is you had to have four semesters of art history, which is unheard of today. You, way, had yeah. to, you had to take painting, drawing, photography, typography, calligraphy, all of these functional arts that you had to take in your first two years of the program before you got to the final two years, your junior and senior year, which honed in on actual media and, and advertising. So it, it was a traditional approach. So that's why I'm saying that all of this history of me informed in me the type of artist that I am today, not only through my dyslexia and my proportional ability, um, I'm extremely good at composition and I'm extremely, and part of it is that I don't just take a blank canvas and start making a bunch of marks willy nilly and yeah. slapping paint down here and there and trying to make something work while you're wasting all this time and material. I can't work that way. It just it just is impossible for me to do abstract expressionism. I just can't. I've tried it. I have. I've tried it and I can't do it. And I've applied those that can. I really do. But for me as an individual artist, working within a traditional realm of having a preliminary sketch, knowing to some extent a destination where I'm going with, with, with my work or with a particular piece helps me to get started and get motivated. 
I think if you rely completely on intuitive work, this is you're going to run into artistic block all the time. Artists that I know who are like this, they, they really struggle with that. Staring at a blank canvas, trying, because it's intimidating to make something from nothing. So why not go out and sketch the, the landscape or, or go to a figure class and sketch the figure? Why not give yourself some form to get your juices going into the direction you want? So in a way, I'm a very, I'm a traditionalist in this preliminary sketch format. Um, in some ways, I ride the fence because what I do is kind of different. You know, it's a different style. It's a different look. And, and I do encourage artists to develop their own look. Don't don't copy other people's work. It's it's a it's a dead end street. It doesn't do you justice and it doesn't honor the person you're copying either. Um, it's something that you should really develop your work based on your own individuality, your own history, look to what you've been through in life, focus on something that inspires you. For me, and what started the urban series was moving to Chattanooga from the country. So all of a sudden, because I was in Atlanta for 16 years when I was doing the graphic design illustration thing, because all my clients were there and I was, I needed the big city and I needed to yeah. have, I needed to have that resource. When I got into fine art, it was like, now I needed seclusion. So I left Atlanta and I moved to North Georgia and the Blue Ridge area. And so I was in the mountains and it was a beautiful place to be. And it gave, it nurtured me. The Appalachians are a beautiful chain of mountains and it was, it was beautiful terrain. And it gave me the, the space and the time where I could focus on my art and then the Great Recession happened, which changed everything. So I, my, my life is a line of demarcation from before the crash and after the crash. Yeah. Because I had a lifestyle and made a lot of money prior to the Great Recession and then the abyss after the Great Recession. This is when I learned to live with less. Hmm. And this is where I will say my penchant for not getting into debt is what saved me to be able to continue doing what I'm doing because I hadn't acquired debt and I had a very small mortgage on my previous place based on thinking of the future and buying homes with a big down payment and, you know, yeah. being able to, to see it as an investment and take that investment and put it in the next one, having even a bigger down payment till I got to this house where I was able to buy it outright. So it enabled me the flexibility of not having because that's the biggest expense for anybody it's why you have roommates yeah you know to, yeah. to afford rent or mortgage today it almost yeah. doesn't matter where you live it's so expensive absolutely that includes the first part of my conversation with artist Anna Carl thank you very much for listening any questions or comments about it, please send me an email over at theflyingfruitball at gmail.com or get in touch on social media sites such as Instagram and Twitter. The Flying Fruit Bowl podcast is available on a variety of sites such as Apple Music, Spotify and YouTube. If you like the show, 
Please consider rating, reviewing, sharing, or subscribing on any of these platforms to help spread the word. Also, please don't forget to check out theflyingfruitball.co.uk for daily art inspiration. And if you're a creative, please get in touch for a chance to be featured or interviewed. If you'd like to support the platform further, we now also have a Patreon page. To hear start for more about, and more information can be found over at patreon.co.uk forward slash theflyingfruitball. Additionally, if monthly donations are not your thing, we also have a PayPal for one-time donations. I'll put a link to our PayPal in our show notes. Once again, thank you very much for listening to the episode today. Until next time, folks, please stay safe.